Good morning, Claire. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Good. Very well, thank you. Very excited to be here recording episode 12. Can wow. you believe it? It's quite a few episodes. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's been it's great fun. fun so far. I agree. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about your latest column in The Australian, all mm. about the CSIRO's Gen Cost report. Yeah. Well, the context of my article was uh, the Australian uh, energy transition. So, for international listeners, uh, Australia, like many countries around the world, are transitioning to a clean energy future, which I think is a good thing. However, our energy transition is 100% focused on renewable energy. So that's wind and solar. And I'm critical of the focus on renewables, that is wind and solar, to the exclusion of nuclear energy, because I think that the data shows that nuclear energy is one of the most reliable, clean energy sources that is able to scale up. Now, the scaling up is very important because while renewables are great, like it's great when people will install solar pa panels on their roof and they have a, a battery in their home, they become very cumbersome when they're trying to support a large electricity system because you need all sorts of transmission lines to get energy from place A to point B, point C to point D. It becomes complicated. And so what Australia is doing at the moment is uh, we have all, all sorts of mega projects underway where we're building massive uh, solar panel farms, huge uh, wind turbine projects, huge multi-billion dollar transmission line projects uh, where transmission lines have to go through people's farms, people's private property, wind turbines have to be built on people's private property. And, you know, there's whole regions of Australia that are going to be blanketed with turbines and solar panels and then the ground is going to be dug up for the transmission lines to transport energy from point A to point B. And now all of this, all of these projects are underway and are currently being funded by our governments to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. So I find it surprising when people say that all of this infrastructure and all of this build is che somehow cheaper than nuclear energy, right? And the this claim has in Australia has relied on one report, which is the CSIRO's Gen Cost mm -hmm. report. And for those of us, or for those who aren't in Australia, the CSIRO is like our chief science agency. Yes. That's right. It's mm -hmm. our national science agency. Mm -hmm. It's um, regarded in very high esteem. It's a highly respected agency. However, uh, their Gen Cost report has come under criticism. And now we spoke to a data scientist who has critiqued the Gen Cost report and found that in the assumptions of the model that the CSIRO built, they have cleaved out the cost of building all of the infrastructure from the actual cost of renewables. So the billions of dollars being spent on transmission lines, the billions of dollars being spent on the wind and solar farms today is being deducted from the cost of 
uh, renewable energy in the future and their future projection starts at 2030 onwards. So my article just explained to the general reader what this assumption is and how the CSIRO has relied upon it to reach this conclusion that renewables are cheaper. And uh, I just explained that because this is not common knowledge in Mm -hmm. Australia. We hear over and over and over again that renewables are the cheapest, renewables are the cheapest. Yes, but it's like saying housing costs are cheap if you've already bought the house. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you if you deduct the many billions of dollars, like some people, the government has um, committed $40 billion to all of these mega projects. And if you add on um, all of the time delays, because pro- these types of projects always go for longer than is anticipated. You know, if you add on the extra $20 billion, it's, it's likely going to cost so 60 to $70 billion. Like, yeah, I mean, it's going to be cheap after $60 billion has been spent, but that's a lot of money to be deducting from your overall costs. And why do you think they left out those figures, those costs? Like, do you think like (laughs) Occam's razor, it was just... There's a, a strange hostility towards nuclear energy among environmentalists. I don't really understand it because if you look at the graphs, I saw a graph... Uh, the other day of France's decarbonisation. So France decarbonised back in the 70s, way before climate change was even on the agenda. And they did it because they built nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. And the graphs are incredible. Like carbon emissions just went down, clean energy just went up. And they didn't even do it because climate change was a concern. They did it because they wanted to have a secure source of energy because they they transitioned to nuclear after the oil crisis in the 70s and they just didn't want to be dependent on external energy sources because they had to import oil. And like I just find it surprising that so many environmentalists are hostile when it's clear that decarbonisation can be done. It has been done. It's been done by France. Sweden is the other, you could say, golden child. Mm -hmm. 99% of their electricity comes from low carbon sources. Now they have some renewables, but they also have nuclear and hydropower. Mm -hmm. Not every country can have hydropower because you need mountains and you know, waterfalls and and all of that kind of thing. But um, no country has successfully decarbonised without nuclear energy. Do you think that part of the reluctance, say, to use nuclear energy is an identity thing? Because I can see lots of nuclear sceptics. They seem to say, oh, no, the right loves nuclear and we're not on the right, so we're anti-nuclear. That seems to be more and more part yeah, of the debate. Yeah, and that, that's unfortunate. If the energy source itself is seen as an identity marker, that's quite unfortunate. But it's not the case all over the world. So in some places, there's no association of nuclear energy with the right at all. And um, in some parts of Europe, you know, the lefties are on board with nuclear Mm -hmm. energy because there's jobs associated with the industry. Mm -hmm. And And it's clean. Exactly. So it, it differs from region to region. I think part of the reason why nuclear energy is viewed with hostility, though, is because um, a big part of leftist environmentalism is the idea that what is natural is good. And so nuclear energy is not seen as being natural enough, Mm -hmm. 
but the solar panels and the wind turbines, which are made out of heavy metals anyway, yeah. are more natural. Mm, sounds better. <laughs> yeah, and obviously there's concern with waste. Um, people are afraid of radioactive waste, which is obviously a legitimate concern. But once people learn that a very small amount of waste is produced every year through nuclear energy production and it's stored safely in um, casks and there has been no accident, you know, there's been no accident in the United States in a long time. I mean, and then, you know, obviously the accidents of Fukushima mm -hmm. and Three Mile Island mm -hmm. and Chernobyl are brought up. So there mm -hmm. are legitimate concerns. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to argue that nuclear energy is perfect mm -hmm. and that there are no safety concerns or no waste mm -hmm. concerns. However, if you do read into it, a lot of those concerns can be alleviated with data. I mean, Canada at the moment are building the world's biggest nuclear power plant. Oh. They're ramping up the, and it's under Trudeau's government, yeah. which is a left-wing mm -hmm. government. They're ramping up. China are building something like 15 nuclear power plants mm -hmm. over the next 10 years or I probably got that wildly wrong, but they're probably building 15 mm -hmm. in the next five years. I don't mm -hmm. know. But almost every country in the world is investing more mm -hmm. in nuclear energy, mm -hmm. except for Australia. We've got the, the stupidest policy mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. It's highly embarrassing. Mm -hmm. We have a moratorium on nuclear power in this country, which is just absurd. And so, <laughs> and so we dumb. are... Um, you know, that I don't have a problem with renewables. I just don't think that Australia is ever going to reach this target of 80% renewables by 2030, which is what Chris Bowen is aiming for. I think it's, it's very anti-nuclear. Yeah. And I, I, I just don't see it happening. I don't think people realize what the scale of 80% renewables is going to look like with the absolute amount of infrastructure that requires. And then it's not clear at all that it will reduce power prices because the, the energy itself is cheap when it's sunny and windy because you get a massive excess of supply of energy, but that doesn't make it cheap at the customer's point. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between wholesale energy prices and retail energy prices. So when you get your energy bill, that's the retail price. And the difference between wholesale and retail is all of the complicated shit that the, the market has to do to make sure the right amount of energy gets to the right place at the right time. Just generating shitloads of energy doesn't necessarily make it cheap mm -hmm. when the market has to switch it off when there's too much and then transport it over here when there's not enough over here and then, you know, send it back when there's oversupply and like there's all sorts of complicated stuff. So renewables introduce volatility because they're intermittent energy yeah. sources. So they introduce chaos into the system and then to overcome that chaos, the market has to do all of this complicated stuff mm -hmm. that then gets passed on to the consumer. So it drives up prices. Mm -hmm. At least that's what we've seen in Germany and California yeah. and other places that have the highest penetration of renewables into the market. Do you think we'll see an end to the moratorium in our lifetimes? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's absolutely essential. Uh, I hope Labor can come to its senses. It's just a it's just a shame that Bowen's dug in his heels so hard because he can't sort of backtrack now without looking like a fool. Yeah. So it might have to wait until the Liberals come back mm. into government, which might be a while. Mm. But it would definitely happen in our lifetime. It has to because we're not going to so. decarbonise without it. Yeah. 
And we're one of the most uranium-rich nations on Earth and yeah. we're not straddling a tectonic plate. So, yeah. you know, Fukushima was caused by an earthquake, right? Like yeah. we we don't really have such a risk of that in Australia. So Yeah, yeah, there's mm. all sorts of good reasons why we sh- should have a nuclear industry here. I mean, we do have a nuclear reactor mm-hmm. here already for medical uh, purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucas Heights, in which is quite Sydney. close to Sydney, right? It's yeah, in Sydney. Yeah. It's like I've driven past it many mm. times. And then we're getting nuclear-powered submarines. So there's no reason why we can't have a nuclear energy industry yeah. as well. I hope we see it in our lifetimes as well. So do I. Change of course. Sure. Pretty different topic, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're very – we have a lot diverse, to talk about here. Yeah. Yes, very diverse. I wanted to talk to you about – anti-Semitism. Yeah. Because recently, um, well, just today when we were on Twitter, we saw that Pearl Davis, that infamous YouTuber, yeah, yeah, influencer, is trending because she released this video saying, like, why can't we talk about Jews on YouTube without getting kicked off? And then Pierce Morgan invited her on his show, Uncensored. Yeah. And in my opinion, and I think in, in yours too, tell me yeah. if I'm wrong, but sort of showed her up to be quite a fool. Yeah. Um, she didn't defend herself very well. I, I, I think it's rather sad, actually. Mm-hmm. I haven't followed her trajectory or her career. All I know is that she's apparently 26 mm-hmm. and has 2 million YouTube subscribers, which is quite impressive. Mm-hmm. We're but, almost there. <laughs> <laughs> but she says quite inflammatory things she does. against women. Mm-hmm. And the couple of tweets I've seen say things like, you know, women have wrecked society and the only legitimate role for women is reproduction or motherhood Mm -hmm. or something like that. In that we shouldn't, like it was a massive mistake to give us the right to vote. Yeah, so pretty extreme, pretty out there Mm -hmm. inflammatory stuff. And, you know, obviously feminism can be criticised. We do it. Yeah, but she's not presenting thoughtful arguments. She's saying things to get a reaction Mm -hmm. and... The irony is that her presence on YouTube and her role as an influencer actually contradicts what she's actually saying. Exactly. So if women have wrecked everything, then why is she on YouTube giving advice? Yeah. And if the only role for women is out of the political sphere and in the home, then why is she offering up opinions on YouTube? Like the very act of giving advice or of sharing her opinions through an international platform, mm-hmm. which is YouTube, contradicts her entire ideology. So I think it's kind of ironic. Maybe she's addressed that irony somewhere. I'm not sure. Well, I had her muted on Twitter <laughs> uh, for months. I mean, she's pretty new. Maybe she's been at it for a while, but her popularity is quite new. Yeah. Um, and I've just had her muted because I find her... Inflammatory. Yeah, and just cringeworthy. <laughs> and, like, she doesn't add anything to my timeline. But, you know, for research purposes, I, I look through her Twitter. And she just is so biased in her criticism of women and she sort of couches it in criticism of feminism which is you know what we do to to some extent but she truly thinks women are dumb and says for example her argument that well I'm not sure if she truly thinks that because she's a woman herself but Mm. she says women shouldn't vote because we're just always changing our mind (laughs) and that a woman should vote as her husband does so you know, everyone in the house should agree. Right. But as you would know, like, I'm sure you don't agree with your husband on everything. And, you know, it's just ridiculous. What man, what strong, intelligent man doesn't want a strong, intelligent woman? 
Yeah. yeah. I certainly don't agree with my husband on everything mm. and we have some pretty spicy conversations <laughs> from time to time, but that's part of that's part of modern relationships. You don't have to agree on everything. And to be honest, all of the intelligent men I know would not actually would not want a completely submissive wife who mm. just agreed with them blindly on everything because that's boring. Is that and at the end of the day, I mean, marriage is uh, a very long-term commitment with someone who you actually want to have a conversation with yeah. <laughs> and talk to. Having someone who's uneducated and submissive and agrees with you on everything mm -hmm. is going to uh, lead to a very dull experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And most men with any kind of education or intelligence are not seeking that mm -hmm. from a long-term partnership. So I just think... But she's appealing to a certain market and a certain audience. And I mean, she's in, absolutely entitled to her opinions. And some, you know, it's totally fine to have very traditional views on gender roles. I don't want to hold that against anybody. And I think it's totally fine for people to express them. But it feels like her audience have driven her down a path that's leading to more and more extremism and that's why she's now ended up singing this song about Jews mm -hmm. and part of the song said, I don't know if Hitler was a bad guy or not. Yeah. And, you know, look, maybe she had those sort of odd views prior to becoming a YouTuber. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But we know that audiences, when you're getting a lot of feedback from an audience and they reward you with likes and affirmations, the more extreme that you get, it, lead, it can lead people down a path towards producing more and more extreme content. And so in our society, we've got this concept that radicalization happens because influencers radicalize their audiences. But in reality, it happens the other way around. Mm. Audiences come to radicalize influencers. And she's not the only example of that. There was, there's a guy called Nikki Avocado. Oh, yeah. Remember that guy? Nikki and Avocado, the, yeah. The essay that Gowinda Bogle yeah, yeah. wrote great, about. Great essay. Do, do you want to explain what that guy did? Well, the yeah. Avocado guy? So, this Nico guy was a very, like a virtuoso, a very talented cellist, I believe. I think maybe violinist. Violinist, yeah. But he um, was a vegan. Yes. So, yeah. he was a vegan and he was just sharing, I think, music and vegan. Yep. content and eventually through like audience capture I, I I think um ended up just creating these videos of like these mukbangs which is where yeah. people just eat copious amounts of food gorge themselves in front of the camera mm. and he became morbidly obese over mm. time mm. and his audience was encouraging him to self-harm essentially mm. on camera mm -hmm. um and that's what Pierce Morgan or, or the Jewish woman who, who comes on to talk with Pearl talks about that Pearl is sort of self-harming in front of all yeah, these people. Like yeah. it doesn't look good. She's embarrassing herself yeah. in many ways just because her, her audience keeps egging her on. Yeah, yeah, and mm. encouraging it. And mm. that, that's right. And in the comment sections under Nikki Avocado's videos, mm -hmm. you can see people encouraging him to eat more, mm -hmm. Uh, congratulating him mm. on gorging himself. So mm. people can engage in pretty serious self-harm mm -hmm. and gain audiences from it. 
and even make money from it. Yeah. I think there's another famous YouTuber who became very uh, badly anorexic. Eugenia Cooney. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know that much about mm-hmm. YouTube influencers. Mm-hmm. I spend too much time <laughs> online. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's other examples, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing where people engage in self-harm and mm-hmm. are rewarded for it either financially or just through attention. Mm-hmm. You could even argue that rapid onset gender dysphoria mm-hmm. is a product of this mm-hmm. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like there, I've seen um, TikTok videos of girls showing off their masks mastectomies Mm -hmm. and getting likes for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think we fully understand how vulnerable young people Mm -hmm. are to the rewards that you get from social media and from producing content, whether it's YouTube content or TikTok content, like the flood of rewards that you get from all the likes and the positive comments in the comment feed can become I think for young people it can become very addicting definitely and if you start being rewarded for going down this path of, of self-harming or becoming more and more extreme with mm-hmm. your statements it can lead to somewhere very dark mm-hmm. and you won't get a reliable signal from your audience that you're going too far because mm-hmm. there'll o- always be people who egg you on and encourage you more to become more extreme mm-hmm. to self-harm more so it's really I think it's really important for anyone producing any kind of content to have feedback from people who have your best interests at heart Definitely. whether it's people in your immediate uh, life like mm-hmm. a partner or family members mm-hmm or people who you respect, such as mentors, because you need accurate feedback, Mm -hmm. not just from strangers on Mm -hmm. the internet. Yeah. And this is part of the problem with, you know, how our communication is going, that so much of it is going online, especially during and after COVID. And like younger people just aren't socializing as much. And that's why people like Pearl and Andrew Tate, to some extent, she brands herself as a female Andrew Tate, have gain so much popularity because young people aren't socializing with the opposite sex so much in person. Yeah. So when Pearl's telling these young guys, like, women can't have their own thoughts because they're just changing every day, like, they're not serious people, giving them the right to vote was a mistake, all these other ridiculous things that she says, that they're whores. She talks Mm -hmm. a lot about how women are whores and how it's women's fault and not men's and, you know, it's so biased. The young guys listening to this are impressionable because of their age and because of the lack of socialization in person. So they don't really know what a woman is or how, you know, male-female dynamics work. And I don't think Pearl's married. She's only 26. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if she's been in a serious relationship, but we both have been. And I think, you know, we have a good concept of male-female dynamics. Yeah, yeah. You know, of course women are not as good at some things as men and men have their pros and, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it's not black and white. And you touched upon something really important. I think... Uh, like what I strive to do when I talk about gender issues is not pit one sex against the other. Exactly. Because I think that each sex has unique problems and it's hard for both sexes. Mm-hmm. So I think 
men have unique challenges, particularly in today's culture, which is in some respects slanted towards women. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I don't think women have their own Mm. challenges. Like we talked last week about the challenges of having a career and children and how difficult it is for women to make the right choices and um, negotiate Mm -hmm. all of the Mm trade-offs. So I think it's very hard for women as well. I don't believe in the war of the sexes. Like one, I think... There are conflicts and there can be conflicts of interest in the mating market and so on, but uh, we're all human beings Mm. ultimately. And most um, normal people without personality disorders have no problem with the opposite sex Mm -hmm. and like the opposite sex as friends and lovers. And I think generally uh, seeing the opposite sex as some kind of malicious force is a sign of something Rock, something unhealthy in one's own psyche. Exactly. There's a political element to this. So I don't know what it's the data is in Australia, but mm-hmm. at least in America, I've seen charts which show that young women in particular have become extremely progressive in their political views. And while whereas young men have not. And so I think this is contributing to the alienation. Young men and women are not interacting as much face to face because uh, we've got these phones and it's a lot easier for people who are introverted mm-hmm. or awkward socially to just stay at home mm-hmm. and go online. But on top of that, a lot of young women now are woke and have some really ridiculous ideas about gender and about men and about the patriarchy and so on and so forth. And this compounds the alienation that is already there because of the lack of communication. And so... For young men who don't know any girls in their real life who aren't hyper-woke, I think it must feel very lonely. And then to stumble across people like Pearl or Andrew Tate or whoever who offer like the complete absolute opposite Mm. of wokeism, that must feel like I can see why people fall into that. Yep. But both sides are too extreme, right? Like there is, there actually is a middle and you can criticise mainstream feminism and, and, and the results or outcomes of certain feminist kind of interventions or whatever. You can criticise modern society whilst not hating the opposite sex mm-hmm. and whilst not demonising entire groups of people. And you can have a nuanced, scientifically informed perspective, mm-hmm. like it is possible. But when you go down this path where you're just denigrating entire groups for being stupid, you know, it, can, it leads to a pretty ugly place. Yeah, I mean, this recent scandal was about the conspiracy of yeah, Jews yeah, yeah. and you know she's not the first person to to fall for this I mean Kanye is very famous for it but I have noticed recently uh it actually took me um you know dating it a Jewish man to realize how much anti-semitism there is just sort of lurking under yeah. the surface so you know I've dated my last boyfriend was Spanish and I never felt reluctant or nervous to tell tell anyone that he was Spanish. But now I find myself, you know, if if it comes up in conversation, um, I'm I'm sometimes reluctant to say, oh, my boyfriend's Jewish. Why is that? It's because people on the left often... They hate Israel. They hate Israel. And I think some of them genuinely hate Jews, mm-hmm. um, but they couch it in yeah. being anti-Zionist. And then on the right, you know, most of the right, is fine with them, but 
you know, it depends on what right you're talking about. Yeah. Like centre right, yes. But when you move you to know, the extremes right. and the fringes, there's some really it's ugly. Creepy. It's an interesting example of the horseshoe theory. Definitely. When you get to the extreme left, there's mm-hmm. anti-Semitism and the extreme mm-hmm. right, there's anti-Semitism. And I often think of anti-Semitism as a conspiracy theory and almost a symptom of mental illness. So the idea is that because there are Jewish people in positions of power in media and finance, they're all somehow working together and pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. And the right-wingers who are anti-Semitic see Jewish people overrepresented um, in the left. Mm. So like the Frankfurt School, like Macuza and... Adorno mm-hmm. and, you know, the members of the mm-hmm. Frankfurt School mm-hmm. who, what they call cultural mar- Marxism, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what we call mm-hmm. wokeism, mm-hmm. they blame that on Jewish people because Jewish people um, are overrepresented in academia, overrepresented in Hollywood and so on and so forth. But what they miss is that Jewish people are also overrepresented on the right. Mm. So they're everywhere mm-hmm. and look, just like white people are everywhere mm-hmm. and just like anybody of any ethnicity is anywhere. And so what they're doing is they're cherry picking mm-hmm. to suit an argument, which is their conspiracy theory mm-hmm. and ignoring the contrary data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just sad. It's just, uh, you know, it, but, you know, conspiracy theories, I don't know if they're more popular today than they used to be, but they're a sign of unresolved personal issues, mm-hmm. I believe. Not that some conspiracies are not true, mm-hmm. but in general, if we're seeking to explain the world through some kind of malevolent, sinister forces, we're generally not. We're generally oversimplifying things. Definitely. So a lot of what happens in the world is random. Mm-hmm. It's extremely complicated. And to simplify things into a neat narrative where one group is somehow evil and orchestrating Mm -hmm. things is a kindergarten level of analysis. Yeah. And unfortunately, in this world, everyone has a platform (laughs) and they can just go onto Twitter and or YouTube and just spew whatever these crazy ideas are and hatred. Highly recommend if people are interested in reading Ed West's latest um, substack on this, Where Are the Jews Safest in Europe? It's a really good history of anti-Semitism in Europe and how it used to be that Jews were most safe in the West of Europe. But it's changing because France, there's a lot of, like there were those shootings in Paris a few years ago in the Jewish grocer, I believe. Yeah, and and something that we don't talk about much is racism towards successful minorities. Mm. So it's not just Jewish people, Mm -hmm. but Asian Americans, Mm -hmm. Asian Australians suffer racism too because they're a successful successful minority mm-hmm. and so today I think the trend is to call them white adjacent. Mm. Jews get labeled with that as well. Yeah mm-hmm. I think in America that you know racism is seen as white against black mm-hmm. but as we know they're like as you point out hate crimes Jewish people suffer hate crimes all the time and so it's not as sim- simplistic as white on black it's you know I think black people themselves are mm-hmm. overrepresented in actually committing hate Mm -hmm. crimes against Mm -hmm. Jewish people. I think there's some data that suggests that Asian Americans are attacked. We publish on that, I think. Um, So it's complicated. And racism is not a one-way street. Like certain groups are racist against other groups for Mm -hmm. reasons we don't understand, Mm -hmm. tribal affiliations, 
you know, Sunni Muslims, Mm -hmm. Shia Muslims Mm -hmm. going way back, you know, the sectarian violence that can be very deep-seated and very old that has nothing to do with white supremacy, Mm -hmm. basically. That's why it's so ridiculous that this new concept of racism, which is that racism has to involve power, structural power. Plus privilege, yeah. Yeah, like you have to do an equation. Mm, is this racist? <laughs> Get out your calculator. No, like obviously all humans are capable of racism. It doesn't matter what skin colour or yeah, where you come from. Absolutely. Like, it's a shame that some of these forms of racism are not considered true forms and that entire groups of people, are, their suffering is dismissed as being white adjacent. I think it's quite uh, atrocious, really. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to chat about? Today? I'm all good, Zoe. Me too. Well, see you next week. See you next week. Bye.